You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Good afternoon. Welcome to Spy Chat. I'm Amanda Olke, Director of Adult Education at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have two great speakers that will be leading this conversation. My cool boss, Chris Costa, the executive director at the museum, and my very cool Spy Museum Advisory Board member, Kristen Wood, who had a really wide-ranging career with the CIA. And um, most recently at the agency, she was Deputy Chief of Innovation and Technology Group at the Open Source Center. So they are gonna have some very interesting perspectives on what's happening in the news today, what's catching their attention right now. They're also gonna let us know uh, a little bit about what they are reading that's particularly interesting. So after their brief presentations, um, they'll be answering your questions. Now, before I turn this over to Chris, I wanna thank our wonderful sponsor for this event, and that is Accenture Federal Services. And Tracy Eastler, who is with Accenture and is also a Spy Museum board member, which is really important to us to have this kind of support and, and networking. So I'm gonna say goodbye for a few minutes and turn this over to much more interesting people. Chris Costa, please take it away. Hey Amanda, thanks a lot for the introduction today. And Thank you everybody for joining our virtual program today. I'm particularly excited because I haven't done a program with Kristen Wood. And as you will see in a few minutes, she is widely respected by her peers, former peers at CIA and across the intelligence community. Uh, you'll, you'll see why in a few minutes. And also I wanna second thanking Tracy, Tracy Eastler as well as Accenture who are tremendous sponsors. Uh, for other things as well as at this particular program. So without further ado, the first story that I'm tracking, which is classic espionage, is about a Singaporean consultant that was recently arrested here in Washington, D.C. It's classic. He pled guilty as 
acting as an unregistered agent for the government of China. In this particular case, his mission under the direction of Chinese intelligence was to spot, assess, and perhaps to even develop sources, Americans that would provide intelligence to China. It's fascinating in light of the fact that director of FBI, Ray, Christopher Ray says that there are, is every 10 hours, the FBI is opening up a new counterintelligence investigation related to China. That's an extraordinary statistic. And right here in DC, we have a recent case. So that's the first story I'm tracking. The second story is completely unrelated that I find interesting. And it's an opportunity to for folks to pay attention to a story that'll hit the media probably when the book is published. But we already know that former director of CIA, John Brennan, is publishing a book in October. Uh, I suspect it will be critical of politicization of intelligence, and he'll lay out his views as the director of the CIA. Uh, he'll talk about, obviously, Russian meddling of elections. The real story, I think, about this particular book is the fact that, according to Washington Post stories and other news outlets, Brennan went to the CIA and he asked to have access to his notes in some of his classified uh, documents that he signed, that he would, of course, still have to go through pre-publication review, but he would have an opportunity to refresh himself as he wrote his memoir. And he was denied access uh, to, to those papers. So. The question is, you know, was there a political motive for that? I'll leave that up to the audience to decide. The third story that I'm tracking relates to a question that I was asked last month at SpyChat, and it had to do with Russian meddling in the UK, in Britain. And the question was, are the Russians, in fact, meddling with the electoral process in uh, the UK? And the answer came in the form of a parliamentarian report that was just released in the UK that says, yes, in fact, there has been wide scale Russian disinformation and interference of the entire system within the UK. And the key points that I want to highlight is the fact that one, your takeaway should be the British intelligence establishment essentially ignored, ignored uh, the uh, actual election interference. Secondly, there's no evidence that Brexit voting was interfered with. Thirdly, we also know, according to the parliamentarian report, that the Russian interference started long before Brexit. And lastly, and importantly, money played a significant role in this. So it's not just disinformation. It's also uh, the government of Russia and oligarchs have flooded had flooded Russia with money. There's been laundering of money. There's been influence campaigns of politicians. And we don't have a great sense of it because, frankly, according to the parliamentarian report, uh, the intelligence system within the UK really wasn't tracking it. So compare that to the United States. I think the United States is spending a great deal of resources now, not only tracking Russian disinformation, but also declassifying some of the reporting and making sure the public knows our vulnerabilities. Uh, 
back to classic counterintelligence again, and let's talk about China for, for a moment one more time. So we closed, the United States closed the Chinese consulate in Houston. That's a big story because we've never closed a consulate of China in the United States for espionage activities. And this very much relates to the fact that China is looking for scientific research in the course medical and scientific research is ongoing in Houston. And of course, this is in retaliation for some of the Chinese operations directed against the United States. And just this week, in fact, I wasn't planning on talking about another Chinese case, but it broke and I can hardly ignore it. A former CIA officer of about six or seven years and an FBI linguist was just arrested as an unregistered agent of China for providing classified. It was a classic um, undercover operation, presumably by the FBI, and the individual was arrested for, as I said, an unregistered agent for China dealing with the Chinese intelligence services. All right, I'll, I'm gonna take a break from counterintelligence and shift gears to a really interesting and important story about counterterrorism and terrorism. For the first time, the Trump administration used terrorism authorities and charges, and it's directed against an MS-13 senior leader by the name of Melgar Diaz, if I pronounce the name right. He's in El Salvador. He's a, a, a brutal murderer and conspiracy, presumably, and he has certainly had oversight over 20 clicks across the United States in 13 of our states implicated for dozens of murders and conspiracies associated with murder and rape. It's really important that the administration, in my humble view, uh, took it upon themselves to, to use all the authorities that we have. And those authorities include ramping up pressure against MS-13. That's not a foreign terrorist organization, and that's an important distinction. It's really a criminal, uh, transnational criminal organization, but it behaves a little bit like a mafia syndicate. It behaves a lot like terrorist organizations. And it's something to keep your eye on as we go forward. And some people have suggested that it's also a death cult and they're a brutal organization. So I like to see the pressures been placed on MS-13. The next, the next story I wanna talk about regarding counterterrorism is just a reminder that uh, civilians continue to be the victims of terrorism worldwide. In this particular case, just this past week, Al-Shabaab, who, as you know, are an affiliate of Al-Qaeda, attacked a resort in Mogadishu, and some 16 individuals were killed. It was a complex attack with a vehicle-borne explosive device that uh, breached security. Al-Shabaab operators assaulted a hotel you know, the Somali people are trying trying to have some normalcy. They're dealing with the virus and they still have Al-Shabaab really trying to frighten the population, which is their principal objective. So I wanted to make sure I reminded all of our listeners and people tuning in that terrorism continues internationally. Two stories I like to talk about hostage issues, and I like to talk also about detention issues. So I'm going to talk about both because they were both in the news this past month. Last week, the editorial board of the New York Post published an article reminding the world that Austin Tice, a former U.S. Marine who was a journalist, 
was celebrating his 38th birthday in the beginning of his eighth year in captivity in the same week, uh, eight years ago or seven years ago. Uh, Austin Tice has been detained by the Syrian government and Assad and his regime refused to acknowledge that detention. But we know that the Syrian government is holding Austin and we want to continue to put pressure, international pressure, pressure on releasing all hostages that are held worldwide. So I want to flag that for our listeners and our watchers today. The second hostage story might be trending positively and it has to do with another editorial from my friends and people I've worked with from dealing with hostage cases in the U.S. government the mother of James Foley, the family, mother and father of James Foley, Peter Kasig, Kaylor Mueller, as well as Stephen Sotloff, individuals that were brutally killed by ISIS, held hostage, and as a result of, of the hostage taking, all of them are gone. The parents came together and wrote an editorial, and the gist of their editorial is having an effect. The gist of the editorial is bring the conspiratorials back, those who have conspired uh, to, to execute those hostages are being held in al-Assad in Iraq. Two of those individuals were formerly British citizens. They've lost their citizenship. They're held in Iraq. And the families want these two individuals they're from a cell because they're from the UK. They were known as the Beatles, euphemistically. The families want these individuals to come to the United States, to face ex extradition, to face our legal system, and go to jail for the rest of their lives. The UK is reluctant to provide evidence because we have a death penalty. This week, because of the pressure placed on the US government, Attorney General Barr has said, that he is willing to take the death penalty off the table. And that is really good news for the families. So there's a lot of legal wrangling ongoing, but it's an important case that I want people to be able to track. Um, and finally, I wanna wrap up with two other stories. One is a fascinating story that was published in the New Yorker about Ali Soufan. You might know Ali Soufan. He's a former FBI agent that was very much involved with post 9-11 investigations. Ali Safan was approached by FBI agents. I want everyone to, to understand, those of you who don't already know, that the US government for due diligence, if they come across intelligence that a citizen anywhere in the world is gonna be killed, they have a duty to warn when at all practicable. In other words, intelligence officers, someone has to try to reach out and say, there is a credible threat against you. It was a whole lot easier with Ali Safan. He's here in the United States and the FBI said, there's a credible threat that perhaps somebody is going to try to kill you. The interesting twist to this story is Ali Soufan is uniquely positioned to do some additional investigation. And through his investigation, he realized he is also the subject of a really ruthless disinformation campaign that's ongoing directed against him. And it's his team of analysts that believe that some of the same script writers for the disinformation directed against Khashoggi, the journalist who was killed, I think you all know the story, um, it seems that Saudi 
Arabia, according to the New Yorker reporting, has some of their fingerprints all over the story. So is it Al-Qaeda or is it a Saudi conspiracy? It's an open question, but it's a fascinating story. And since we have talked about Khashoggi in the past, it really got my attention when I read this report in, in the New Yorker. And lastly, to talk about another intelligence officer in another book, a guy right out of central central casting, former head of the Mossad, an individual by the name of Shabtai Shavit, former head of Mossad, as I said, an individual I met about a decade ago, is also publishing a book that will uh, hit the press in September, an English edition. And I encourage people to take a look at some of, some of his uh, assessments to include how Iran is going to handle perhaps someday having nuclear weapons and what that means to Israel. And I, I think his insights are really important as a former head of the Mossad and a fascinating, colorful individual at that. Uh, I think that wraps up the stories I wanted to highlight. And I think I always like to talk about the books that I'm reading. So I have two possible recommendations. One of them I know we sell in the Spy Museum store. I randomly picked it off the shelf recently. It's called God Spies. It's about how the East German intelligence services during the Cold War penetrated the Lutheran Church, the ruthlessness of the Stasi and their internal security service. Just a fascinating, fascinating story. In the second book, it's not available to the public, but I'm doing a podcast on it next week. So I encourage folks to look for it when it hits the newsstands and look for the podcast that I do with the author, Chris Whipple. I wanna make sure I get the title right. The book is called The Spy Masters, How CIA Directors Shape History in the future. So without further ado, I really am excited to hear from Kristen today. So Kristen. Okay. Chris, that was fascinating. Thank you. It was great to hear the take you have on all these stories. Um, I want to thank you and Amanda for having me here today to, to join you. It's an incredible honor. Um, and also my thanks to Accenture Federal Services for sponsoring today's talk. And it's just so nice to have a way to keep connected to people who are interested in national security issues. And a brief aside, I would just say I went to the museum again two days ago, um, first time since COVID. And I just, for those of you looking for a field trip or maybe your kids from homeschooling a field trip, it's fantastic as always, but really uncrowded. I think there were seven or eight people in the museum when I was there with my group. Um, no, no commute downtown, great parking, and of course, wonderful stories that Chris and Amanda and others have created. So definitely go to SPY. I think the thing for me this time, I always try to go with a different um, focus. This time was really looking at, in this moment of, of racial division and race being such a moment of conversation, how did that play out in the museum? And from James Armistead Lafayette, um, the black slave who was allowed to work in the Continental Army became a slave for Cornwallis and was able to feed in intelligence to support uh, Washington and others and critical to the Battle of Yorktown. Uh, from the very beginning of our country, people of color have been so important to our success in building our nation. 
not to mention Harriet Tubman or Josephine Baker or the Navajo Code Talkers. So I would just urge you to go. Um, it's a wonderful place to be. And in particularly in this moment, there's some wonderful, wonderful artifacts and stories. So I'm going to start with a few um, more traditional national security stories and then move on to maybe some things that are a little more unusual and uh, untraditional. And shockingly, um, for a national security professional, I get to start with a good news story, um, which isn't always the case. And that is Israel and UAE, the United Arab Emirates, um, normalizing relations, making peace. Um, Israel has sought peace with its Arab neighbors for many decades. It's been Egypt and Jordan exclusively for decades. And so this moment was created by the fact Netanyahu agreed to uh, suspend annexation of the West Bank um, with the Palestinians as, as opposed to pursuing it as he intended to. And the UAE was able to say, no, he's stopping uh, annexing the West Bank. And so this is the moment. Um, you know, why would they, why would they do that? A couple things at the top of my head, likely the threat of Iran looms large for both. Um, political Islam, I think they both share concerns over that. And there's a ton of business to be done between the two countries. So I'm going to be watching this story to see, are there other nations that follow suit um, in normalizing relations? On kind of the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of good news, um, I'm also looking at the situation in Belarus. In early August, the strongman President Lukashenko, who's been in office 26 years since the end of the Cold War, announced that he had won the election with more than 80% of the vote. Um, the op opposition and many average citizens did not accept that, and they've been out on the street protesting. Um, it is a brutal, brutal regime, and so the, the police and military activities against the protesters have been systematically brutal, according to Human Rights Watch. So um, we're, we're looking at this for what happens. The EU yesterday announced they're sanctioning a couple dozen of the highest-ranking officials from Belarus. But what worries me about this is um, that the Kremlin's announced that Putin, the Kremlin and Putin are willing to activate their mutual defense agreement um, and to bring military troops into Belarus. And uh, Hannah, if you wouldn't mind just pulling up the map. I thought it was easier to discuss why that was important um, based on a map. So if you look at um, this map, the, the everything in color is former Soviet Union. Red is currently Russia. And then the states that have declared independence since the Soviet Union. So if you look to the West, you can see Belarus. It's a really important position that it has as a buffer between Russia and NATO. I mean, Russia actually does all sorts of military maneuvering in Belarus because it knows that. So if you think about what's happening now and you think of our allies in Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia, our NATO allies, and this region, this is, this is really has the attention of Europe and these are, and um, particularly these nations for good reason. Um, and and it, we have to think about it in the context of what happened in 2014 in Ukraine with the Crimea. If you can see the here, there's a little um, little red dot here, Crimea. Um, it was annexed from Ukraine during the Ukrainian similar incident in Ukraine. 
2014, and it's now part of the Russian Federation. They did this to get Sevastopol, the a warm water port, but also home to their Black Sea fleet, to secure that property. And um, there's low-scale warfare still happening in Ukraine. Ukraine has remained a democracy, but it has not uh, been able to move forward. So the instability there is something that I continue to watch very closely. And seeing where Belarus is, it just it's one of those things that makes me very nervous as an intelligence professional. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Okay, so next issue, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about data. Um, and you may not think that uh, data is particularly sexy, but it's really um, important. And I would uh, commend to you an article by Sue Gordon, I think it was August 7th, an op-ed on the data ecosphere and the kinds of things we all need to do to better protect our data. Um, I just want to talk about two aspects of it because I think it's really um, important. So we're at a point where there's more data, as we all know, we're buried with it. There's something like three quintillion bytes of data being added every single day. So while most businesses are chasing um, apps for money, and that is where the money is, the value is in the data. And it's so abundant, it's coming out at sort of at, with a fire hose. How do we get through it? How do we protect it? How do we manage it in a way that's consistent with our dem democratic values? And so I'm watching stories to see how um, business leaders and our government is, is looking to address this. Kind of two things I just wanted to hone in on. What, one is data integrity. So if we think about um, Russian interference in the elections or Chinese interference in the elections, it comes here from us not understanding the provenance of the information that comes to us through social media, through 24-7 um, online media, and it is a real problem because as a democracy, we really depend upon truth and trust as foundational. And we don't have the tools in place to filter that data through to tell us, is this someone I can rely on? And as an intelligence professional, as an intelligence analyst, this is a, a difficult one for me because it's the very first thing we learn on the job. It's to evaluate a source of information. Do they have an agenda in telling us? Or do they have a bias? Are they trying to motivate us to action? Are they trying to manipulate us? And in assembling all of multiple sources that we've vetted 
to a story to say, okay, given the story that I have, what kind of confidence do I have in this judgment based on this? How certain am I? And so individuals, we can't do spend that much time being rigorous about the stuff that comes across our, our feeds. And so this is an area I'm, fo I'm focusing on a lot and watching to see what business and industries are doing to try to manage this at scale because right now our adversaries are manipulating us. They're deepening and expanding the natural schisms in our society. They're getting us distracted, we're at war with each other, and we're not as able to focus outwards. So we've, we've got to get a way to address this. Um, second is, thing I'll talk about is data protection, so cybersecurity. Um, you know, if our data isn't secure, our adversaries, our competitors, and hackers even can come after it. And for an individual, it's a question of privacy. For government, it's a question of keeping secure data secure. But for business, it's really about protecting um, both customer data and intellectual property. And we have such a dynamic technological sector, private sector, and our adversaries know that. And so they're constantly coming after our, our IP. Um, I just, one of the articles I just read uh, is a study from CNBC poll of businesses that said one in five reported last year that they had been a victim of a cyber attack to steal their IP from China. One in five. So IP, intellectual property, for those of you who don't know, it's, it's things like patents, um, trade secrets, uh, trademarks, copyrights, that kind of thing being used without permission. So if you think about the damage to our economy from that as it's happening all across the, the country in every sector and has been for years, the Harvard Business Review estimated that it's about 80% of the value of S&P 500 companies is in its intellectual property, its IP. So this profound um, theft is taking away the value and the growth potential of US companies and, and handing it over to Chinese companies. So um, it's to, to the tune of something between 200 and $600 billion a year, depending on how successful they are. So this is really, really important that the private sector gets protection that we all are, we all protected on individual level, but we've got to stop this IP theft. So I'm watching stories related to that to see how individual um, uh, entities, businesses are looking to put an end to it. Um, and I didn't intend to spend quite so much time in the China basket, but I, I want to go to two other ways that we're seeing China make inroads into the United States. One was an article um, last week that I was following related to um, purchase of 140,000 acres of land in Texas. Um, it's a Chinese conglomerate set up a US subsidiary to make the purchase. This conglomerate is really closely tied to the leadership of the uh, Chinese Communist Party. And um, it has bought a wind farm, connecting it into our electric power supply. And it just so happens to, I'm sure, accidentally be near Laughlin Air Force Base, which is the base where the Air Force trains most of its pilots. Um, it's of a concern just as an individual thing, but the, there's a 2015 law that the Chinese passed that I wanna read to you because 
I think we have to look at everything through the rubric of this. Um, it says, any organization or citizen shall support, assist, and cooperate with the state intelligence work in accordance with the law and keep its secrets unknown to the public. So what that does is it actually makes an obligation for individuals and corporations to support Chinese, the Chinese security apparatus's goals. So if we think about with the international companies that are trying, of Chinese origin, we've talked, you've seen a lot about TikTok in the news lately, but companies like Huawei too, turning over data. So um, it, it's really something we have to watch because it is, it is not gonna go away anytime soon and we need to come up with defenses for that. So I'm looking to see what companies and defense organizations are doing. Um, you know, and it's not, the second piece on, on real estate really isn't all about just Chinese companies. Um, I was, as I was preparing for this, I was looking at articles related to Chinese purchase of real estate and on an individual basis, um, Chinese nationals are the single largest group of people purchasing real estate in the United States. And while it's not a huge portion of overall real estate transactions every year, um, last year it was 40,000 properties and the year before that. Um, so over the five, last five or six years, it's been uh, Chinese uh, purchases have led all uh, foreign investment in the United States related to real estate. Well, so who cares? Um, most of the properties are in the West Coast, Texas, Florida, New York, and around a lot of uh, colleges and universities in our country. I care about this because I remember the, remember the law, individuals are required to support the goals of the Chinese government. So um, I think really an area of concern for me and we'll look to see you know, how this gets addressed because it, as an open society, we have so many gaps between state and local and federal um, coordination and we're seeing our adversaries do a great job of operating in the gaps between. Um, but Chris mentioned that Director Ray just said in July that they're opening a counterintelligence investigation against the Chinese every 10 hours because they're taking advantage of the openness of our system. I'm not looking to create hysteria, but I really think we have to think about this in a profound way. And I'm looking to see leaders in the Senate and the Hill and elsewhere to talk about how we move forward on this. Um, so last issue I wanted to talk about is um, a few current stories I'm following that maybe you wouldn't expect. Um, one is looking at 2020 Atlantic hurricane season being off to a record start. They're saying they're um, calling for 19 to 25 named storms, twice the number they've ever forecasted. Uh, by July, NOAA says that more than nine had already formed, which is the most they've ever reported since satellites went up in 1966. On Sunday in Death Valley, it was the hottest place on earth ever recorded, um, if, if verified, at 130 degrees. Also this week, uh, 10,000 lightning strikes in the San Francisco and Northern California area created hundreds of fires that are still burning. And then in Baghdad, it's been more than 120 degrees for four straight days. So these are all different stories. And, and so why as a national security professional do I care? And it's really because 
these are manifestations of the national security implications of climate change and extreme weather it creates. And it's already having a major effect on us and exacerbating trends worldwide for instability. And these are going to challenge our national security in the decades going forward. So I've come to think related to this that protecting the U.S. economy and the strength of the U.S. economy is one of the most important things we can do as national security professionals. It's what allows us to support our allies overseas, to oppose our adversaries, and to support our government on our way of life. And in the last 20 years, we've had more than 240 weather and, and uh, um, storms that have cost our economy 1.6 trillion. In the last year, in 2018, we faced $14 billion weather events. In 2019, the same. So this is having a tremendous effect on our economy already, but it's also affecting our ability to project military power. DOD, Defense Department, as many of you know, are phenomenal planners, and they are brilliant at addressing the, wor the world in which they find themselves, not the world in which they wish they were. And they've identified climate change and its effects as immediate threat to U.S. national security in terms of how it goes after its installations, its missions, and its operational plans. So in terms of installations, they've said about half of their 3,500 domestic bases are at risk for extreme weather. Phenomenal amount of money is going to need to be spent to bring those up to a standard that allows them to be sustained. And if we don't, we've seen what happens. In the last year and a half, we've had $8 billion of damage from Hurricane Florence to Camp Lejeune, to Hurricane Michael, to Tyndall Air Force Base. Oh, by the way, where we have a third of our F-22s that had to um, not operate there for a month. Um, and then the bomb cyclone, you may remember in the Midwest, um, flooded a third of Offutt Air Force Base, where we have U.S. Strategic Command, and we have, it's the U.S. military's command headquarters in the event of an emergency. So I say all that to say, this is really important in terms of how it affects our ability to operate. But it also is expanding DOD's worldwide mission because there's so many more storms that are much more severe. Support and assistance is having is being provided much more frequently, and it's shifting the missions in terms of what they can accomplish. Um, the other big thing I want to talk about with climate, and my last one, is um, the Arctic, and it's a new place for great power competition. And we're seeing the Russians go out very aggressively on this. The melting ice has created a northern transportation channel. It was open at least in the summer. And the Russians are owning it. They brought in military presence. They have they escort ships through. Um, they have icebreakers to make sure that happens. And they're forcing you to register with them to go through. Um, it's really an important uh, development because it's much faster than using the Suez Canal for shipping from um, China to Europe. And so it's money and resources going through this um, channel that just wasn't available for. But the other big re big focus there is the vast untapped natural resources there that are now becoming more accessible. And I think there's a real focus by Russia, the United States, all the Arctic 
circle nations to be involved, but even China's trying to get involved, calling itself a near Arctic nation. Um, so these are really important. And as we're seeing elsewhere, it's a threat multiplier to already difficult and existing positions. There's a new book out by one of the folks who's written the original uh, material on climate. And he is saying that the world, the we're going to have less of the world to be able to live in as climate increases. And so we're gonna have mass migrations. And that includes out of South America and Central America. So we have to care what's happening elsewhere in the world because it is gonna come back and affect us. So um, Chris, I, I will follow your lead in terms of books I'm reading. And this is Last Hope Island um, by Lynn Olson. It's about turning the war in World War II and um, it's the the exact opposite of a dry uh, tome. It's just this first person great story of what all the leaders and individual commanders and kings and queens and even the small nations did to turn back the Nazis. Uh, it's a page turner, it's engaging, and I just really recommend you read it. And I think it's actually available um, at the museum. So with that, Amanda, I will turn it back to you. Hi. And Chris will join us. We've gotten so many really interesting questions, but I'll um, throw one in right about climate right off the bat. Uh, people wondered if um, you would say how you felt it rated compared to terrorism as a as a threat to our nation. Oh, thank you. And I, Chris will have something to say on this too. But um, I really appreciate the question. Uh, I have had the chance in my career to work five wars. Um, and um, all of them pose challenge, all of them pose threats to the United States, including the war on terror, and as we saw what happened in 9-11 and in other places. But the climate challenge is existential. It doesn't care about borders. It doesn't care about border walls. It doesn't care about blue states or red states, and it doesn't care what we possibly have to say. So that it also ushers in much greater risks from diseases, as we're seeing what the pandemic has already done to our people and our economy. Um, we really, really have to look at this hard as a national security threat. So um, having been a terrorism analyst for a long time and followed it, I think this one for me is all the more important. And it's actually where I'm gonna be spending most of my time, um, both in consulting and at uh, the Harvard Kennedy School Fellowship. I feel like it's that important. So I'll just interject and say that uh, Kristen and I talked briefly about this the other day, and I, I hope I shock some people that are listening when I say that I'm a grandfather. So all of that said, what I have to worry about are the things that are gonna affect follow on generations. So I concur, in light of a pandemic, we have to look at things that we've never looked at before it, seriously and apply our national security resources to focus on some of those areas that again, we kick the can down the road, so to speak. All of that said, when you're working counterterrorism, as Kristen knows, night and day, nothing matters but counterterrorism and protecting the nation from attack and getting hostages reconnected with their families. You do that with almost reckless abandon. So that said, counterterrorism has to continue. We owe it to the nation to keep 
us safe, our, our population as well as our partners safe. But all that said, as I've said before, we're a great nation. We can focus on more than one thing at, at once. And I will flag a comment written by Bob Gates decades ago in one of his books, I think, From the Shadows. He started talking about intelligence has to cover the whole waterfront. And he talked about things like climate change. He talked about youth bulges and things that were going to affect world hunger. So all of these things are interrelated. <clears throat> So in short, we do have to focus on things like climate change and things like global pandemics. Thank you for the question, though. And we have we have had many people asking you both to comment on the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, um, the Putin critic. Um, and that was breaking news, I think, this morning. He was supposedly poisoned on a flight with a cup of tea, sound, we've heard that story before. Don't drink tea if you're a Russian critic, I guess. I'd like to take this one. I, I'm fascinated by it, and at the same time, I'm horrified. These, this is part of the playbook for the Putin regime. So let me just take you back to the question on disinformation in UK, just as an example. The Russians demonstrated that they can act in the UK, act out in the UK. They can attempt to murder people and murder people. People like Lynn Vinenko in the mid 2000s, uh, Scripple just a couple years ago, I believe in 2018 was poisoned. So I am not at all surprised. And just to go a, a little bit deeper to, to reflect on how serious this is and how not surprising it is at the same time, I, I'm sorry I don't have the title in front of me right now, but I started a book on Sunday and finished the book on Sunday. And it was about the Russian 10, the ten and we tell that story in the International Spy Museum, ghost stories, the idea of 10 illegals that operated here in the United States. They operated here in the United States to provide disinformation, but they also, they also were prepared in some cases uh, presumably to execute active measures. So this is all a part of the Russian playbook. There's an assassination unit that was just uncovered in the last few years. Uh, we now know the numerical designation of that organization. And there's been some reporting that this organization run by uh, the Russian FSB were the same individuals perhaps that have operated on the ground in Afghanistan to conspire to kill Americans with Afghan warlords. And my wife uh, just passed me the book. The title of the book that I read, by the way, is called Russians Among Us. I don't know if we sell that book, but it's such an important story. So this is right out, right out of the Russian playbook. And the last comment I wanna make is about a defector that I knew in 2009. His name was Sergei Tretyakov. And a month after we spent some time together in my home in Virginia Beach, he uh, ch choked to death. And uh, Putin has made reference to Sergei, but not defining him by name, to suggest that it wasn't a poisoning. The FBI did the appropriate investigation, and it seems that it was an accident that Sergei died. But the fact that the FBI, even in 2009, wasn't certain, really reinforces how the FSB operate worldwide. 
So I'm sure that Kristen has something to say about this. I mean, you've covered most of it. The only addition I would make is it's uh, having studied the previous cases, it is such a vile, horrific death to sentence someone to. So you're not just killing them, you're not just removing their voice, but you're making sure that their departure from the planet is as horrible and vicious as possible. Um, you're right, it is a part of the playbook and as a international community, it's well known. So now what? Great question. And uh, there were a number of people were really, they, our listeners really follow the news closely. Um, very different um, question base. There are over 300,000 Chinese students attending school in the U.S. Presents opportunities, presents challenge. How do you think it nets out? Is this dangerous for us or good for us? Or I can take that one first. I'm sure you'll have something to add. It worries me a lot. And, and here's that thing where many of these people are probably great people, great humans, here to learn, eager to learn, um, sincere in what they're doing. Um, and many of them are not. And all of them with family or relationships or ties back in China are again obligated under that 2015 law to do what the state tells them to do to support the goals. And we are such a wide open society. I don't know if we can even say where everybody is. Right. So this is one of these things that strategically as a nation and the National Security Council level, um, I know it's been a topic for discussion it is something that we need to get better answers on, not because educating others is bad, but because it creates inroads to our, our high-tech industries, to our classified industries that um, make us more vulnerable. No, that's a great answer. I would just add that we have to balance security with, with what we are. Our greatness, in my humble opinion, is our soft power, right? Our stickiness. People love America. Even people that profess to hate America want our genes. They know our pop culture far better than I do. They think everybody's a millionaire and they watch our TV shows. All of that said, we have to balance security with the idea that people want to come here and study and be here in America, but at the same time, it, it poses a threat. And there are significant restrictions now. Obviously, there's pressure on China in particular, but it's not its not just China. We, we are vulnerable to, to intelligence organizations from, from other countries. So it just has to be balanced out and prioritized. But the FBI is very, very busy looking at those threats. There are additional restrictions directed against the Chinese government right now related to um, military students are now prohibited, I believe, from coming to the United States to study. In the past, they could come here uh, on almost like a sabbatical, go to our schools. But since they have an association with the Chinese military and what we've seen with China, they've ramped up their operations directed against the United States. Hence, there's been some restrictions. So it's just something that needs to be watched, sadly, because again, people want to come to the United States. It's interesting. I saw an article in the Post 
just about, you know, kids whose plans for college obviously have been incredibly changed by the pandemic. And I think um, might have been a Chinese student, a, a young woman who was looking forward to coming because she wanted that campus experience and trips to Chick-fil-A. I just when you're talking about the pop culture, it's so funny that that was the a big part of her American college experience that she was going to miss. Um, anyway, on a much more serious note, really um, directly into Chris's hostage wheelhouse, two questions that I'm going to combine. Um, not only what is the what is the hardest part of ho having hostages and trying to negotiate, and also how do you bring international pressure to bear? You mentioned the need for that. How do you get that? Just a little question. Yeah, I think that, first of all, the United States does negotiate with hostages. Um, it, it's a myth to suggest that we don't. We want to engage with hostages. We have an excellent policy for doing that. So it's a combination of diplomacy. It's carrots and sticks. But at the end of the day, it is. Uh, it, it requires the State Department. It requires the FBI, the Department of Defense. It is certainly an interagency engagement. But importantly, from, from my optic, and I say this with all humility, it was our team at the National Security Council really that made sure that leadership, you know, the president that had his eye on the hostages and we were doing everything everything possible, but we couldn't do it without working with our foreign partners. So our diplomatic partners that would, would and again, I wouldn't speak details, but certainly would host negotiations in a third country. So this is of international interest. In, in some cases also, it's, it's about wielding the stick, as I alluded to, the idea of sanctions um, as well as carrots, rewarding diplomatically those countries that will work with us. And also trying to highlight when other countries pay for their hostages, the risk that it puts U.S. hostages in, and really putting diplomatic pressure on some of those countries, because the easy thing to do is sometimes to, to pay hostages and give in to their demands. And, and the risk of, of paying hostages is the fact that only a small portion goes to, to the hostages in their pockets, the rest of it goes to IEDs, to explosives, and to commit acts of terrorism. So it's a complex, it's a complex dynamic. I don't know if I fully answered the question, but I think all of the tools of the U.S. government are employed to focus with some steerage from the National Security Council on on bringing hostages home. But I would say, as a as a postscript to this, the toughest thing to do is to ever celebrate when one hostage is released, when you know there are other hostages that are out there. And all of those names of the families that I mentioned, I still engage with. It's very, very personal. So just um, a great chance for a plug for an organization you've been involved in, I've had the chance to be involved in a bit too, Hostage US, um, nonprofit that supports the hostages and their families, that for the people who've asked the question, you can go there and get a lot more information. And if you have some uh, nonprofit dollars available that don't go to the spy museum, it's a great uh, cause to contribute to. Gosh, guys, we have so many different questions, but folks wondered if you could do a, a light brush on um, Iran, on North Korea. Any quick, quick thoughts on, on those? 
Do you want to tackle that, Kristen, and then I'll follow you? Yeah, uh, well, so I haven't followed North Korea um, recently, so I'll, I'll leave that one to you. But, um, you know, with Iran, I don't, I guess I'm jaded. I mean, it's the same thing in a different, different week, different month, different window dressing. Um, you know, we fundamentally have a very difficult relations. I mean, we're seeing the at the UN, um, the administration's effort to get sanctions put back on was rebuffed. We're now talking about doing the snapback um, process of putting our own sanctions back on. Uh, I, I'm betting that happens, um, but you know, I, I'm not intimately involved in this in government. But um, you know, we have to figure out a way forward out of this because we've been stuck in this um, do loop for a very untechnical term um, for too long. And um, they're a very, very dangerous adversary targeting our military all around the world, um, particularly in the Middle East and targeting our allies and creating instability wherever they can. And it, it's just, we've got to come up with a better, a better strategy, particularly now that um, we've left the um, nuclear agreement. So Kristen's an expert on Iran. We've both worked on Iran. So I would just offer, I am very optimistic, cautiously so, of what's happened with the UAE and Israel uh, in the past weeks. I think this goes a long way toward continuing to build a block that can counter Iran's malign influence in the regions. And if you listen to the former head of the Mossad, he believes that it's inevitable that eventually Iran will have some kind of nuclear capability that can be weaponized. So it's going to require deterrence in the, and deterrence in the form of a block that counters those interests, I think is trending in the right direction. Now, I was, I, I must confess, I was very optimistic with our relationship with Saudi Arabia when I left the administration almost three years ago. And then, of course, the Khashoggi incident occurred, that terrible tragedy, which again, uh, set us back, in my opinion, with, with Saudi Arabia. But it was trending appropriately where, again, there was a Middle East bloc to counter Iran's malign interest. And I also uh, have reflected that the, the pressure placed on Iran has enjoyed some success, but it ebbs and flows. And as, as Kristen just said, you know, the idea of where we are right now diplomatically with Iran, I think uh, that that the UN is going to allow uh, some, some imports of weapons, as I understand it, haven't been following that too closely, but it just suggests that it, it's more of the same. But I think this idea of a block in the region, the idea of a partnership with UAE is really, really positive. And uh, I, I think uh, it's, it's more hopeful than some of the news that I've seen coming from the Middle East in the past three years, and I'm optimistic, cautiously so. I also have to say uh, I appreciate Kristen mentioning uh, Hostage U.S. I, I do want to say parenthetically that I'm also a part of the Foley Foundation, and of course James Foley was beheaded by ISIS. So that's another nonprofit that helps contribute to protecting journalists worldwide from the kinds of things that happen uh, related to hostage taking. And on North Korea, like Kristen, I have to say, I think um, 
although we've we've done some programs and I've talked to Ambassador Lippert about North Korea, both of us were not necessarily optimistic that North Korea is going to change their behavior. So what we have to continue to do is uh, consider the deterrence. Uh, make sure that Japan has capabilities. I think they're moving in that direction. Uh, other countries are going to have to take on greater responsibilities. And I hope that U.S. military forces at some level stay in South Korea to support the uh, the deterrence against, uh, you know, a bad behaving North Korea. Well, I can't believe it because we have so many other questions, but we are out of out of time for our spy chat today. I will share the questions with with Chris and Kristen, and because there are lots of people who want advice for um, their career path forward, as always. So I have a feeling Chris has a set email he might send send to the people about that. I want to thank everyone very much um, for listening today to this incredible conversation. Kristen Wood, people have already said, please have you back um, uh -huh. in the chat. You are fabulous. Chris Casa, you're always back because you're always there. Thank goodness That's for the time. You are fantastic. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.